Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Um, boy, I love that line. It's just sung. Um, there's just, there's still good news worth repeating. And boy, is that true? Man, is that true? And hmm. I am suspicious for all of us kind of joining in this today that um, some of us haven't had a week of good news, right? Some of us are wondering if there's still good news out there. Or even if you bring good news, Jesus, or if you are the good news. And Oh, Holy Spirit, um, would the good news worth repeating uh, be so evident and thick in our homes, on our tablets, in our cars, in our offices, wherever, kind of receiving this word, God? Would that good news be so evident and so worth repeating? Uh, so Jesus, you use your prophet Isaiah to tell us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, God, that your word were never return void. So Holy Spirit, would you come and invade our lives and would your word, God, would your, the word of God spread into our hearts and every part of our uh, bodies and in our families? Would you do that uh, today, God? And would it just be your words that are presented? Would you give us a supernatural attention span, a supernatural ability to absorb this good news, these words that you wrote through your servant Luke, so that we could have them? Would you do all that? And would you please have your way? We trust that you will. We thank you that we get to have this time together, even while separated by miles. And I pray all these things in your name and only your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, happy Independence Day and really, really neat term. You know, there's some that go, well, you can't call it Fourth of July. It's really about independence. And the day that, you know, the Declaration of Independence was written, by the way, uh, this church, New London Presbyterian, you know, Christian Life Center, had, had four uh, signers on that thing. Uh, Folks that went to this church, went to New London Academy, which becomes University of Delaware, all pupils of Reverend Francis Allison, the third pastor of this church. And so, but that document was kind of a statement and declaration of independence from, you know, the, uh, England, from Great Britain, all that, that, that kind of independence. And yet, it's kind of interesting because today as we talk about this message— we're going to talk about just the opposite of independence, right? And so, yep, we de declare our, our, our ability to be an independent nation. And so let's celebrate that this weekend, right? And at the same time, boy, I hope um, this message this time actually calls you to a desire for more dependence and specifically more dependence on, on the, the, the name that's right behind me, the, the Holy Spirit, the, the third part of the triune God, typically the forgotten piece of God. And so what we've been looking at for, you know, several weeks, several months now is the, the role by which the Holy Spirit uh, plays in our life. And so kind of what that looks like is if we read through the Bible, understand the, the story of mankind. And, you know, that's what's interesting. History literally means his story. So this is God's story, Jesus' story about mankind that we kind of fall into. And when you look at that story, there's kind of what's called a meta-narrative. It's the narrative about the narrative. There's kind of this under 
written story that's kind of happened throughout humankind, throughout the history of the world, and throughout the scriptures. And it starts with creation, this idea that God in his great and infinite love ushered in creation. He literally speaks it into existence. So God creates humans in his image and his likeness, and, they, um, and they're welcome to the table. They're, they're his children, and really beautiful story. If you read through the very beginning of the first couple of chapters of Genesis, God makes some declarations about how good it is. And there's this time where it says God walked in the garden in the cool of the night with first humans, Adam and Eve, and it was perfect. And yet we look around, we know this world isn't perfect, and the scriptures kind of cover that and help us understand why we look in our world. And here's what it is. It's the second part of the story, which is just the fall. It's human beings saying to God, we like our plan better than yours. That's what sin is. You've done it, I've done it, consciously, subconsciously, in some way, some category. We have chosen our own way, our own path over God, and frankly, we all know it. It's led to some pain and some sorrow, and our world is filled with that now. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, that's kind of the primer for the, like the, the beautiful part of the story where the hero actually shows up, right? If you think about any superhero movie, it's the same story, right? Uh, there's this perfect world. Bad guys come in, and then the, 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 the movie pans to this being that's greater, stronger than us, the only one capable of resolving the things, and all those stories we, we're just drawn to in our heart because they are all based on the real true story, the story that we, if we sit still long enough, really do believe that the hope for a world has to be outside of this world, right? The next level of politicians, the next regime, the next government, the next nation, whatever those things are. Throughout human history, those nations have risen and fallen. And so to put our hope or stock into ideologies or people is just really, really dangerous. But the story of the Bible is that we don't have to put our hope in that because the third part of the story is where Jesus shows up. Now he's whispered about in the whole Old Testament, but literally the third part is redemption. That literally means bought back. Admission price is paid for us to be welcome at the table. The scriptures tell us the wages of our sin is death, meaning there is a ransom on our hearts. But that same passage in Romans says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. To the story of redemption, that Jesus welcomes you back at the table. Come all who are weary, right? That's the declaration, regardless of where you've been, what you've done, what you've said, what you thought. Today, you've got to hear this. Jesus has paid a price for you to have a seat at his Father's table for now and for all eternity which is just a really, really beautiful idea. And um, it seems like the church uh, for centuries has kind of gotten caught up in that part of it, you know, bullhorn screaming, you're a sinner, you're fallen, right? Repent, right? Acknowledge that you need a Savior and ask Jesus into your heart, pray the prayer, whatever those things are. And many of us have done that, and yet our world's still broken. And there's a reason for that, and that's what we've been spending all of our time for the last several weeks on, is there's a fourth part of the meta-narrative. It's, it, it's restoration. It's the idea that not only does Jesus redeem us, he re-invites us to what we are given in the very beginning of time, a purpose to treat this earth like it's heaven, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And so if creation was an act of the Father's will, fall was an act of human will, redemption was an act of Jesus' will, then this restoration act of the Holy Spirit's will. Like he invites us into all this and then he empowers us. And so we've been studying for a while in the book of Acts. Not an exhaustive study of the book of Acts, but an exhaustive study on the person and work of Jesus and the, the, the empowerment that Jesus does. It says he, what he began he now invites us into and that empowerment comes from the Holy Spirit. So what we've seen is Holy Spirit has come and invaded the first century Christians. 
And as he invaded them, what happens next is the word of God spreads, right? And so it's the word of God. Holy Spirit brings the word of God into people's hearts, and it starts transforming them. And we see beautiful things happen. Now, at the same time all these beautiful things are happening, we're also seeing some real messy oppression, lots of obstacles. And where most of the obstacles are coming from, from these multiple chapters, or in the beginning of the book of Acts, at least the first nine chapters for, short, uh, for sure, are coming from um, external places of power. Uh, religious leaders and government le- leaders, basically those who really like their control and hate people that they can't control, right? And so we see this oppression. We see people die. We see people thrown in prison. We just see that journey, right? And so most of what we've been able to look at is the Holy Spirit continues to move and use people in spite of the external pressure being faced from the outside. Now, now hear this. Within weeks, months, now the uprising, the battle isn't going, now what we're going to see today isn't coming from external places, but internal within the church, which is just really, really interesting. Because what happens is we, we all are drawn to this idea of grace that Jesus buys us back, redeems us, and God empowers us. But what happens at some point is there's this self-righteousness that rises up within us. And here's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 15, and then see some tangible ways to approach our world in Acts chapter 17. It's this. It's what happens in churches, right? They started as movements. They started movements, and then after they've been movements for a while, they become institutions, right? And so we have to figure out systems to pay the bills, organize people, and then eventually, if you're not careful, those movements that become museums eventually, or those movements that become institutions eventually just become museums, right? We've seen it throughout human history. We um, see it, and you can go to Paul Revere's church in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. There's literally like little cubbies, like little square cubbies for people to sit in, right? Be great for social distancing. But the reason they're built that way is there's actually a fee that you had to pay to sit in those seats, right? That's, that's a museum. You come in, and you pay your admission fee so you, you can see and receive or experience, right? And so these, the thing that started as movements eventually become uh, institutions, which eventually become museums. If we're not careful, here's another way to say that. At some point within the church, we lose sight of the mission because we're holding on to tradition, right? Now, the tradition's bad, but we lose sight of the mission. And what happens is mission goes down, tradition goes up in terms of what we hold and value. And I just want you to see this in Acts chapter 15 and call our church a pretty neat thing. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Definitely worth your time. You should actually turn there. I'm reading from the New International Version. That's also what will be on the screen today. If you want to follow along above my head or in the, uh, your Bible, your phone, your app, whatever it is. So here goes. You ready? Be lots of fun. Stay with me. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. So what's happened is we've seen that this movement has started to spread. And what happens is it's now spread from the first century Jews— right? These former religious Jews who had all the rules, all, had all their stuff, and now they added Jesus to the mix. And now the, the church has started welcoming people from different cultures, different backgrounds, different experiences, and this good news of grace and redemption, people are drawn to. They're actually addicted to this idea of grace and mulligans and the opportunity to start new and be refreshed. And so people were drawn to it, and the Holy Spirit was transforming their lives. Now these are people from a different culture, and what you're going to see is um, these first century Christians that were Jews first really liked their culture, like you and I like our culture. The reason we have our culture and participate in our culture is we think it's a good culture, right? So watch what happens here in f- verse 1. Certain people 
came down from Judea to Antioch. Okay, certain people, these are religious people that have become Christians, but they're still religious. They still have their traditions. They like their traditions. And we're teaching the believer. So they're itinerant preachers. They're coming out of Jerusalem and Judea, kind of like the, the, the first and second uh, circles of the coast of where Christianity started. And these guys are now going out and they're missionaries. But when they go in and do their missionary journey, they're now connecting their old life, their old experience, their old education, their old pedigree to this new way, this Christ way, these first century Christians. The term literally means little bitty Christ, right? And so they're going, going, here's what it looked like to be a little bitty Christ. And so they are teaching this. And here's what they teach. Unless you are circumcised, According to the custom taught by Moses, watch this. You cannot be saved. In other words, they are literally coming down and saying, here's the reality. There are certain uh, requirements, prerequisites for your salvation. There is something that you have to do. There is some duty, some responsibility. If you want in on Christianity, this is uh, the only way to do it is to be circumcised because that's what Moses told people. That's what Abraham told people. That was part of Jewish rule to be reminded of this covenant. Really, really awkward to talk about. Won't spend a lot of time here, but um, what circumcision was, it was a, it was a outward symbol for, you know, the heads of households, an outward symbol that goes, we believe in God's covenant. We, we believe, or we believe that God covers us protects us and has made a way and will always make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. In other words, regardless of our behavior, regardless of what we do, God will redeem us. He will buy us back. And so that was an outward, right? An outward uh, picture of that. In fact, it would have been that if uh, women were to get married and they're going, we're going to walk in this covenant family, they would have been able to tell whether the, the head of the household, the father, was participating in that covenant. Why? Because they, they could see it. And so what's happening here is these Jewish Christian leaders are showing up, I guess, with their hatchets and butcher knives and going, you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And so what that meant is first century church, when they're having their new members class, it was just filled with women and children, right? Because dudes are going, hey, I, I believe in the Jesus thing, but not really interested in being a 45-year-old man and having to walk to some kind of ritual ceremony and have that happen, right? And so what was happening is they're going, yep, you, you can trust in Jesus, but it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus plus this. Now, circumcision isn't our thing, right? We don't, we don't say, in order to be saved, you have to do this, but uh, the circumcision, we would maybe put in different categories, like if you want to be saved, uh, you have to dress up, right? You have to look nice at church. You want to be saved, you definitely can't smoke tobacco, chew dip, you know, have dip in your mouth, right? You want to be saved, you can't use uh, bad words. You want to be saved, you have to give a certain amount of money. Come to church a certain amount of times, right? We, we've, we've created some different litmus to what happens for your salvation and how you earn it, but here they're saying, if you want to be saved, you cannot be unless you're circumcised. As you can imagine, this is complicated because Jesus is saying it's by me alone that you're saved. And they're going, wait, do we have to be circumcised? Because everybody else here is circumcised. Is that the only way I can get a seat at the table? Now watch this, verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So if you've been with us or not been with us, uh, Barnabas is one of the first century church leaders. And Paul was Saul, a very devout religious Jew who liked control. Uh, persecuted those he couldn't control, first century Christians, and it has this crazy moment. You can go back and read it in the book of Acts where he comes face to face with 
Jesus, Jesus intervenes his life post-death, post-resurrection, and says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Like, why are you persecuting me? Why persecuting my followers? Those are my children. You don't mess with them, right? You get that if you're a father. Don't mess with my children. You mess with your, my children. You're messing with me. So he does that. And Saul has this, you know, he, he has this radical transformation with, in moments, days, hours, he is now walking and declaring the good news of the gospel. So these two guys are saying, it's not our pedigree. It's not what we've done. It's not our behavior. We have no right to sit at the table except for Jesus made it possible for us to sit at the table, so that's what we see in this moment. And so uh, you can imagine Paul and Barnabas are a little concerned about the, this doctrine that's invading the church, right? And so into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they go, hey, we don't believe that's true, but what if we're wrong? Because when we were Jewish, that was a pretty big deal. You can go back to the days of Moses with his wife and battles and all sorts of complications about, you know, circumcision for the children. This was held in very high regard. So we, we don't think that we, that that's, needs to be added for these Gentiles, but let's make sure. So they, it says sharp dispute. That means arguing, debating. I mean, pretty intense, right? Veins popping out of foreheads kind of thing. I mean, this is intense argument and debate. And so what the church, the, the church in that area decides to do is let's send some people back to Jerusalem to have some conversations with those people who walked with Jesus. Hey, so let's go back to the apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus, and let's make sure that the Holy Spirit is guiding us on what we should do. So the church sent them on their way, right? And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles have been convert, uh, converted. This news made all the believers very glad. This is amazing. It'd be easy to bypass this. Uh, just, I don't know, months before when Jesus would travel um, the Jews were confused because they couldn't imagine going in that straight shot back to Jerusalem from Judea. They would have circumvented, added an extra day or two to their trip to just avoid uh, Samaria because it's filled with dirty, broken Gentiles, right? The ones that uh, the, the, the religious folks, the Jewish folks didn't like. They hated their culture. They thought they were pagans. They sinned different than uh, Jews did. And so, I mean, they, they were despised. And all of a sudden, uh, Paul and Barnabas and the other guys are like, hey, we'll just take the direct shot. And as they go, while the, the church in Antioch is going, no, you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. You, have, you can't be a Christian unless you do this. They're literally walking. And as they're walking, they're declaring this good news to all these Gentiles. So now they have all these more Christians who haven't been circumcised as they're going through. And then they get back to Jerusalem and they go, hey, good news. The, God, the word of God is spreading to all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And here's what it actually says. The news made all the believers very glad. So there's this hope and joy that comes through salvation. And yet there's going to be some hesitancy here because it means that might adjust um, their tradition, right? Here's what happens next. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. They're greeted, tell them what's going on. Hey, you're not going to believe this. This is crazy. Like the Holy Spirit has landed. He's, he's now in, you know, like in Pentecost. He is in, he is now moving throughout the, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth, right? He's, he's doing those things right now. This is crazy what God said he would do. Guys, he's actually doing it, right? We, we're sometimes surprised by that, even with our own plans. When they actually come together, you're like, wow, that actually worked, right? And so they're going, this plan that Jesus had declared 
It's actually happening. And people are going, we believe in the resurrected Jesus. We saw him, and now we're seeing the evidence of what's going on through them. Now watch this, verse 5. Gray clouds come in. Then some of the believers, I want to make sure you understand this, these are actual Christians who belong to the party of the Pharisees, that is the religious sect that really did like their legalism and their laws, right? They really liked that stuff. And then they became Christians, but they became Christians and go, no, no, no. Here's what it looks like to be a Christian. Here's how church services work. Here's the liturgy we use. Here's what people should look like. Here's what people should say. Here's how people should be greeted. Here's what foods they should eat. Here's what all those things could look like, right? This fundamentalism that kind of seeps in because we all are drawn to things we can control. Okay, if I do these things and I can feel better about uh, maybe that God will like me more because I've, I've performed the right task. And so these Pharisees are very heavy uh, laden with tasks. Now watch what they say. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. This is complicated because there's actually 613 laws that were given uh, from God to Moses. And um, with those laws, we get, you know, kind of the summation of most of those in what's called the Ten Commandments. Now, I've told you this before. I want to make sure you understand this. The purpose of the 613 laws was not to get us to perform them all correctly, right? God knew we couldn't. It was a reagent. It was to help us understand how much we could not perform the, the law. The way I've told you about the Ten Commandments, you got to see them like an MRI. You go and you lay in the MRI. Nothing about the MRI fixes you. You don't apply the MRI to your life and, and it just fixes you. What does an MRI do? It just reveals to you what's hiding underneath the skin. It reveals to you what's going on in your bones and in your body, right? That's what the, these laws are about. They're there to actually bring up the brokenness. Why? Because they were there to point to the fact that you needed a surgeon. You needed a new heart, right? And the, the point to the fact that you needed redemption, and the redemption you need couldn't come from yourself. So these guys lost sight of that and go, no, 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 the rules are because God wants us to follow them perfectly. Now, all these rules were beneficial for community, and when you follow them, you're wired and live a better life, right? They understood that, but the, the goal was to actually help us understand how much we could not keep God's law and be perfect like God is perfect on our own. So they go, you got to follow the law. Now the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So they go, oh, we probably should have a meeting about this, right? So they they join and they have a meeting. I don't know if they used Robert's Rules of Order or doubt it. And, but they got together, these first century uh, apostles. That's these, these uh, first guys who walked with Jesus, these elders of these first century pastors. And so these guys get together. And they have a discussion. And they go, what do we do? Like, there's people saying this. And there's a lot of Christians who have gone through this tradition. If we tell them that this tradition doesn't matter anymore, are we discounting their tradition? If we're going, nope, doesn't matter. They're going, but that's actually how they came to faith. That was a very significant moment in their life where they go, I choose to trust in God. I choose to trust in his covenant. So are we, are we discounting their tradition? Are we saying that that tradition wasn't meaningful or doesn't matter? Right? Like, what, what do we do with this? Because there's a lot of God-fearing Christian Jews who have held to this tradition and have done it for the right reasons because they wanted to please God. So what do we do with this? Because when we, as we sort through it, do we say not to do that? And then what, what, what all these people we already told them, they just did that. You know that just yesterday, you know, those 35 Gentiles were just circumcised because of this. Now we're going to tell them that they shouldn't have done that. It was a waste of their time. Like, what do we do with this? There wasn't 35 Gentiles circumcised the day before, just hypothetically wrestling through what the conversation would have looked like for them. After much discussion, um, Peter got up and addressed them. Okay. 
So Peter's going, okay, who's going to, I'll talk. I mean, get all these people. There's some people that like their tradition. We're about to tell them some things about their tradition. They're not going to love. We're going to, so let me talk to them. And this is what he says. Brothers and sisters, I would say, you know that among you, that among you, brothers know that sometime ago, I'm sorry, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that sometime ago, God made a choice. There he goes, among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So, hey, you know, we all know, we're, we're all, um, you know, examples of this, that the word of God was going to spread, and it's crazy, through humans empowered by the Spirit. And the, the word of God was going to go out and spread to Gentiles. We just covered that last week with Cornelius and his family and his household. We're seeing this happen. Hey, so this word of God is going to spread to all nations, all tribes, this message of the gospel, that's this good news, the person and work of Jesus, that all are welcome at the table if we trust and believe, right? God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them. How do we know? By giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Here's what's crazy. If you want to understand this role of restoration, you got to hear this. The God of the universe wants to empower you with his spirit to do his work. Not to empower me, not just me, not just church leaders, not just deacons, not just elders, that this spirit is available to all humans. That's you. Why? To, to go and participate in this restoration. You know those things that you just long for those, the world to be better? That, Like, for example, poverty, right? You, you want, don't want people to go hungry. Racism, the idea that someone thinks they're better or worse because of the color of their skin, like, you know that deep longing you have to, like, uh, m help make that right? Or the idea of orphans, you know, that inside you, you just got that, like this deep longing. Or even environmental stuff, this, this earth should be better taken care of. That inside of you, right, widows, these people should be taken care of, right? Uh, you know, all those different things, that deep longing inside of you, God put it there. And guess what else he did? He wants to empower his spirit in and on you to go and make heaven or come to this earth because people won't be hungry in heaven. People of every skin color will be in heaven, right? There'll be no children without mothers and fathers in heaven, right? When God comes and rules and reigns on this planet, it will be perfect. There'll be no pollution. There'll be no trash you know, all over the place. There won't be plastic bags all over the ocean, right? All those things. Like, there, these are longings that are put in us, but the God of the universe and his spirit wants to empower them. So he goes, look, we know that's the case because we've seen these Gentiles receive the word and be transformed and immediately want to go and participate in the restoration of our world and want to share this good news. Found people go and find people. Save people go and serve people, right? And so, hey, we're seeing the Holy Spirit come and do this, and you guys know it, right? He did not discriminate between us and them, circumcised and uncircumcised. Why? Because he purified their hearts by faith, right? So the only thing they had was faith. They had the unexplainable, God, we don't know how all this works, and the undeniable. Yet you are a resurrected Savior, Jesus. Those things collided, and they go, we trust in the, the Spirit of the living God, right? And so we have seen the evidence of this, and the way by which they received that was just faith, just trusting God with their lives, right? Verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God 
by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear, right? This is an idea of slavery and servanthood, and there'd be these yokes that were placed on, you know, uh, animals and people, and the way by which weight was distributed, uh, the yoke would help them carry lots of weight. And so they, he said, what he kind of acknowledged the law, he's like, we are putting on them a yoke that is so heavy and putting so much stuff on it that they will not be able to carry it. But don't judge them. Because neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear it either. Right? Like, you can't even keep the rules that you make. You can't even keep the promises that you make. How in the world would we expect everybody else to follow the rules that you don't actually follow in secret or in the dark? And my guess is, because you don't actually follow them, you don't believe that God judges you and responds to you based on how well you follow them. Because if you really believe that when no one was looking, you still try to do the right thing. But deep down in our hearts, they're so broken. So we're going to go, hey, let's just pretend we're good and healthy. Let's pretend like we had it all together. Let's pretend like we're godly. And then let's tell these Gentiles they have to do it too. So look, let's just be honest. You haven't actually followed all the laws or the rules. So why in the world would you tell someone else to follow the laws and the rules that you haven't actually followed the laws and the rules? And the reason I'm saying you is because I know that about you because I know that about me. That's what Peter's saying. We, nor our ancestors, have been able to bear. No, he says in verse 11, we believe it is through what? The grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Just as they are, right? No, we understand that God gave us those laws. As we tried to apply them, we realized how inept we were, incapable we were, how broken and dirty our hearts were and are. So there is nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. That's why I use the word grace here. It is a gift from God, right? I love this. I love that little acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Like God gives you all this stuff and he pays the price for it. Like God pays for the admission through his death and burial and resurrection, right? That's why we do communion. We'll do it in the service. Acknowledge Jesus' price that was paid for us to have free admission back into God's family. And he said, so we're saved through grace of Jesus. We are deemed only by God's work to put anything else on that, to say that you got to get circumcised, to say that you have to go to church a certain amount of times, to say you have to give so much money, to say you have to do all those things. What you are saying is what Christ did is not enough for your... Um, ability to be received by God, right? So when you add anything else, even if it's just a bag of chips, right, to the mix of how you get saved, you are then saying what Christ did was not enough. So here's what you're really saying then. You're saying that God is a sociopath, right? If what Jesus did wasn't enough and there was something else you could do to earn your God's favor and be welcome back at the table, then there was really no need for Jesus to actually die. And if there was no need for Jesus to die, then the God of the universe murdered his son for no reason. That makes him crazy and a sociopath. The minute we add anything else to the gospel, we are saying Christ is not enough. And that's what we just saying that Christ, no, no, Christ is enough. He is the one who pays the price to buy us back and welcome us at the table. 
So in verse 12, it says this, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles to them. They're going, look, you, you, you have to see it to believe it, but we saw it and we believe it, right? This is like these folks fell in love with Jesus. The Spirit landed on them, right? The whole family, I gotta tell you what happened with Cornelius, his whole family, they, they all got baptized and they started sharing the gospel with their neighbors and they started sharing their food. They started loving people they used to hate. They started forgiving people and asking for forgiveness. Like there was this evidence that they got and grasped the gospel and the Holy Spirit invaded them. Let me tell you the stuff that done among them, the Gentiles through them, that Jesus had done. Verse 13. When they finished, Jesus spoke up, or James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. This is so good. I want you to make sure you understand this. This is Jesus' little brother. Now imagine what it would take for you to believe that your brother or sister, older or younger, was the God of the universe, the resurrected Savior, the Messiah, right? So just the matter, just the sheer fact that this guy was able to see his resurrected brother and go, no, no, my brother is Jesus. My brother is the Messiah. He's the Christ. That in itself might just be enough evidence for you in uh, understanding the resurrection, but he is now this uh, leader in Jerusalem, and he's going to share kind of a, a judgment. Here's what he says. Simon had, has described to us, that's Peter, how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. So God intervened. Simon thought. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written. So this is uh, referencing Amos, long, long time ago, right? After this, I will return, watch this, and rebuild David's fallen tent. That's the place where God was seen to rest and people have access to him. It's ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind, so not just the Jews, not just those who are circumcised from Abraham's line, from the, the, the line of Abraham and then David, right? That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. Praise God, because that's most of us. Who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things no from long ago. So this is really, really neat, really, really important. James is going, oh, let me, let me help you religious folks who like your tradition. Let me, let me help you understand this. So let's go to your Old Testament scriptures that you are saying you esteem and hold to such high value. What do you do with these scriptures? Because God actually said that he would save the Gentiles from long ago, right? So he's speaking their language. Going, let me help you understand that this was always the plan. Then verse 19, and please, please, please circle this. I wish it were graffitied. I don't really want it graffitied, so please don't do that. But on the, on the walls of the outside of our church, right? This is it. Watch what he says. Watch what he says. It's so, so important. He goes, it is my judgment, therefore, as a result of all this, as a result of the evidence, as a result of hearing Peter, as a result of this, that we, the church, the mission, should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, we need to make it simple for them, right? Like, we should not add more steps, more ladder rungs, more uh, requirements. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. You get that, right? Like, 
That's why we got to be careful with uh, church languages. Uh, some of you are watching this for the first time, and I want you to so understand who God is, not be impressed by our church or be impressed by someone's knowledge or education from this, using this microphone, but to understand the spirit of the living God and that you're welcome at the table. He's going, why in the world will we add anything to that? Here is the judgment. We should not make it more difficult. In fact, that's, this, is, this is the mission of our church. If you want to know, the mission of our church is this. It's to make it simple not difficult, to make it simple for people to connect to Jesus and one another. In other words, we don't want to make it difficult for anyone, right? If you've never been to church before, if you're nervous about your kids coming to church, if you're nervous that you'll be wearing the wrong thing, if you're nervous you don't know where to park, if you don't know any of those things, our goal, our objective, your objective is to go, we should not make it more difficult for those who are turning to God. And so this is, I want you to hear this, and um, really, really important it's been kind of neat because as we're kind of teaching this passage, um, our elders are getting together and staff and going, right now it seems really difficult for people to turn to God, particularly as it relates to church, like, right? Most church buildings, doors are shut, and if they're open, there's all sorts of fear and anxiety, and some of you are really, really going, hey, when are we going to reopen? How are we going to do that? How, how does that happen? And uh, we're working through all that, and we'll be able to lay out a plan pretty um, pretty uh, soon. And uh, just to be candid with you, we're hoping by the end of July to figure out a way to um, be able to survey how we, how we get in the church, maybe do like a, 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 a dress rehearsal on a Sunday and have you kind of RSVP'd and let you, uh, if you want to come inside and we'll kind of uh, separate the space, make sure all that happens to see. So maybe in the beginning of August, um, uh, we can start engaging back indoors, you know, even this week in July. Uh, the kids zone, uh, kids ministry from kindergarten through eighth grade is kind of re-engaging. We're trying to figure that out indoors, but it's difficult right now. All this stuff is difficult, and we're going, well, we don't want to make it difficult. We want to make sure people can hear the Word of God. So the, the mission is to make it simple for people to connect to Jesus and one another. The, the vision is we want every single man, woman, and child within 10 miles of this church, Right? to be able to accept or reject the claims of Jesus, right? To be able to hear the, hear the word of God. And so as we've been sorting through, how do, we, how do we reopen? What do we do? And then also being really mindful that there are many of you who will not re-engage in a church environment for at least the next three, six, nine, 12 months, right? You have, um, you have uh, family members who are really, really kind of immunocompromised, right? And so this COVID and coronavirus stuff and watching what's going on in our world and going, hey, we just got to be really, really careful. And we're like, we get that, but we also don't want to make it difficult for those of you who want to turn to God through Jesus, right? And so as we're talking through it and thinking about reopening, one of the things that came up is, hey, will that mean we'll still do drive-in? Because that's a little bit more contained. You could come every single week, pull in your car, not uh, completely touchless, contactless. You can pull in, you can turn your radio dial, you can see and receive God's word and worship collectively with other people, and then you can head back out and never, ever get close to any kind of, you know, sickness, virus, or whatever else. And we understand that for many of you, that's just going to be your option for a while. So the question kind of rose up in um, the elder meeting of, well, even when we go indoors, what are we going to do for those folks 
that can't come indoors yet. We're going, yeah, we don't want to make it difficult for them turning to God. And so as we wrestled through, prayed through, worked through, one of the the things that uh, we presented and decided on was actually to create an outdoor video screen, not like a projector, but that you can see in the middle of the day, 20 feet wide, 10 feet tall, that could literally be put anywhere on our property so that we could continue to um, stream the service, allow you to come for as long as you want, to be able to take that to other places so that this word of God can go to places when people can't come here yet or come doors yet. So you'll see more about that, hear more about that over the next couple of weeks as we're building it and shipping it and preparing it. And uh, we'll definitely update you on those things. But the goal of that was to go, we want to make sure that it's not difficult for the, those people coming to, to God. We want to make it not difficult, right? And so as we soar through that, work through that, that's just one of the ways to do that. By the way, I just would be, I want to be real clear here that, um, the reason right now that you can hear this, like that we are talking, I'm on a microphone and I'm speaking to a camera right this second and you can receive it in your uh, house. And the reason that you can listen to worship and see the worship that drums, you know, musicians, that is actually because this church that was started in 1726 over and over again throughout the centuries have said, we're not going to hold on to tradition. We're going to stay focused on mission. Right? We're not going to hold on to tradition. We're going to stay focused on mission. We began working on how do we go online and get into neighborhoods and on Facebook and YouTube two years ago. Why? Because you guys have um, been generous with resourcing this church to go, we're going to stay focused on mission and not hold on to just tradition, right? And so literally, this is evidence of that. There are many people in our church who have been there for, been here for decades who would prefer a different music style, would prefer a different length of sermon, all those things. When they have their own preferences, I have my own preferences, right? We have these preferences, but what they have done, and I want to praise Jesus for you who've done this, right? What they have done is they've surrendered their present uh, preferences and go, we're not going to hold on to our preferences or our traditions because we want to stay focused on mission. The idea that we can make it simple right this second is a result of that. And so that doesn't just mean how does our church make it simple for people to connect to Jesus. It also means how do you personally make it simple for people to connect to Jesus. And so while this passage goes on in Acts chapter 15, and we'll cover it on Tuesday during overtime, you're welcome to ask questions. It gets a little uh, cloudy, starting with verse 20 of, okay, what does all this mean? We'll cover it then. Don't have time to cover it now. And then, so Acts 15, they make this declaration. Gentiles continue to start coming in groves, new members' classes. That's a, this is a joke. Had lots of men in them now, right? Like, so the, the, there's this movement that happened. And so that church is multiplying and every nation and tribe and culture is coming in and it's beautiful and they're going, we're not going to hold on to our tradition because we're so focused on mission, right? And so they're seeing the mission of the church, this movement happening and it's glorious. Now, it does come with some uh, complications. In fact, if you were to read Acts chapter 16, you would see all these new folks come to faith in Christ. You would see a wealthy woman who has lots of resources but has never been really welcome in the, the Jewish leadership, right? Because she's a woman, and her name's Lydia, and literally the, the church, the, the, the church, at, and, you know, the church be, I, loves her, and she becomes a leader in, in the church and the, in kind of a, a hub and a geographical location where the gospel spreads through Lydia, and so she comes 
face to face with the good news of the gospel. Why? Because these guys, Paul and Silas particularly, who are walking through their area, uh, walking to, towards her, going out into the community, are connecting with her and declaring the good news and going, we're not going to make it difficult for you to come to faith in Jesus. It is nothing but the grace of God. Nothing but the grace of God. It is Jesus. Christ is enough. And so we see that happen. And then you see Paul, Silas, and others connect with this, this slave who's a fortune teller right? She's oppressed. She's been abused, all those kind of things. And they meet her and they declare the good news of Jesus that Christ is enough for her. And she, she comes to faith in Jesus. And then Paul and Silas get thrown in prison for it. And while they're in prison, they're literally worshiping God and saying, God, you are enough. Christ, you're enough. Even in the middle of this, it doesn't matter. Christ, you're enough. And, and so as that's happening, the jailer hears it and he is so skeptical of them. And then they love him and are gracious, and he receives the good news of the gospel. Then he takes them home, right? And then this, this jailbreak kind of happens, and they go, no, 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 we don't want you to get in trouble. So they go back, and then this beautiful thing that happens, and the gospel continues to spread. Paul and Silas are released, and then they start moving to different parts of the area and where we find them. And this is what I want you to see, what the Holy Spirit does, and this is how you can participate. We find Paul show up in this place in Acts chapter 17, and it's called Athens. So what you should know about Athens is, I mean, it's not Athens, Georgia, the home of the world, God's favorite football team, Georgia Bulldogs, but this is Athens, as you know, at Greece, and it's kind of the, it is the educational capital of the world. This is where higher ed is. These are the smartest philosophers. This is where they reside, but it's not just that. It's also the art and culture, cultural capital of the world, and it, it's home to one of the largest sports stadiums right? I mean, you would know it even from the original Olympics. This is all Athens. I mean, it is high, high-valued city, high culture. I mean, this is New York, London, Paris, Athens, right? So that would be the deal. And Paul shows up there, and he takes the Holy Spirit with him. So when we talk about not making it difficult for those who are coming to faith in Jesus, this is what we're talking about. So this is how you can actually participate, how you can participate in the gospel. So what do you do with this information? How do you make it simple? Personally, not just our church, but how do you as an individual, if you're a believer in Christ, this is our call, and hopefully save, I told you, save people, serve people, found people, find people, right? And so we got to help do that. So how do we do that? And so I hope you take some pointers from Saul, who gets grace, becomes Paul, becomes the first missionary writer of two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, and he goes place and place to place to place to engage with people and meet them where they are. So what you got to see here, the really big portion of what our church does, is we build excitement. We want you to get excited about the gospel. We build foundations. We want you to really, really, really know who Jesus is, how much he loves you, and how much he has a plan for you, and help resource that plan. And then we build bridges, meaning we want to reach out into the community, right? And so in order to build a bridge, you got to have footings on both sides of the ravine. That means out in the community and figure out how to be welcoming here. Pastor Ben, whoever sees that area, will be teaching you and talking to you more about this next week. But in that, what we see is Paul is, has in the other side, in Athens, footing on the other side of a ravine, and he's about to engage with them. And I just want to make one or two observations, and then we'll have communion. Here's what it says, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul, Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see— um, well, the city was, uh, to see what, that the city was full of idols. So what you see here is you see this moment of compassion. He's looking around. In fact, it was really easy to find a God in Athens. There's statues everywhere. And so he goes there. He has a footing on the other side of the ravine. He's going engaging these folks, right? These Gentiles, these pagans, they do not believe in the spirit of the living God. They do not believe in Jesus, right? And so he's there, and his first moment is with compassion, greatly distressed, right? Do you have that? Like, 
when you think about the people who have no idea that Jesus loves them or has a plan for them and right now they're destined for an eternity disconnected from them, how does that make you feel? Right? If it doesn't distress you, would you start asking this? God, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Would you break my heart for what breaks yours? Like if there's nothing else that you get from this message in terms of how do you make it, not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are coming to faith, it starts with having a deep heart of compassion for those around us, particularly those who are not like you, who don't think like you, don't act like you, don't like the same things that you like, right? And so this is where Paul is in the city, filled with that. And what we see is he's distressed, like his heart is broken for those people. Verse 17. So, okay, he's distressed. So he reasoned in the synagogue. So first he's going to start in the synagogue. There's some Jews there with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. So these are people who believe in a deistic, a creator God, not really sure how they engage with that God because they understand creation and fall. They haven't come to grips with how to get redemption yet. They think it's still from their behavior, their knowledge, what they do, not through Jesus. So he goes and he reasons with these Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. This isn't creepy Paul standing at the checkout line at Walmart trying to grab everything. This isn't loitering. Everybody who's in the marketplace. This is just the cultural center of Athens. So he's there. He's hanging out. He's getting to know people, people that aren't like him. He's listening, right? He's listening. That's one of the things I told you last uh, month ago. Now, hey, can we pause and listen? Why? So we can understand and therefore we can have spiritual conversations. All discipleship, all salvation begins with some kind of spiritual conversation going, well, I don't know how to have that. Well, here's, here's a nice little pointer. Just give God credit right? When you can, be grateful for the life you had, and point to the God who's given you that life, right? Just give God credit for the good stuff he's had in his life. Just be thankful to God when people are talking to you about, like, hey, I really like your car, and it's like, yeah, it's really nice. It's really nice. Got a great job. God's been so gracious to me, something like that, right? And, and, uh, and hey, what a great family. Yeah, I can't believe this. The God, God is so gracious to allow me to, to be in this. By the way, that means your complaining isn't a real good way to point people to God, right? It's through gratitude and generosity. Really good place to start, right? And so he's, he's having these spiritual conversations. Uh, verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Let me say that again because I messed up the word philosophers. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say that is an offensive term, basically calling him a dumb bird that can't eat the seed, keeps spitting it out? That's the derogatory term. So someone that keeps just chewing and spitting, never really consuming or receiving, right? Uh, others remarked, he seems to be advocating uh, foreign gods. So there's all these gods, and like, hey, he's talking about another god, right? So you've got two different groups of philosophers here, the Epicurean and the Stoics. The Epicureans think it's all about matter and that you should eat, drink, and consume as much pleasure as possible. Since it's all the here and now, that's what your life is about. So they're those guys are always arguing for how do we eat more, find more, buy more, consume more, you know, those kind of things. The Stoics were just the opposite. They were the ones that say pain doesn't bother us and pleasure can't tempt us, right? So these are the guys that just, they're like, none of this, none of this world really matters. And it's all about, you know, having your own chi or being, you know, centered on yourself or whatever else it is. And so you got the, you got the Epicureans and you got the Stoics and they hear about this guy and they go, oh, he's talking about foreign gods right? So then uh, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're presenting some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean, because all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing, nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas, right? They just sit there, smoke their cigars, and talk about how deep their thoughts are, right? So this is interesting because um, 
what was happening is these philosophers, these brilliant minds, were still trying to discover the meaning of life, and they haven't found it yet. So the Stoics, Epicureans, could be pleasure. It could be, you know, inward focus, chi kind of stuff, right? On both sides of that, um, they still have not found the thing that's the thing. And so they were always saying, hey, someone else is talking about a foreign god. Let's bring them in. Let's see if we should add that god to our arsenal, right? Because in this world, you you know this from Greek mythology, uh, that basically gods were a means to an end. You know, you got the god of fertility. You got the god of water. You got the god of sun. You got the god of fire. You got the god of light. You got the god of prosperity. All these different things because they are in means to a different end. They're going, hey, should we add another god to our tool belt? Because maybe we can leverage that god for something else we really like, right? And so they invite Paul in to go, tell us what you're peddling here, right? So this is essentially a job interview for Paul to possibly, they, they think, to be one of their philosophers to talk about this other unique god. So they invite Paul in to this, this uh, TED Talk in Athens, right? It's a TED Talk. Um, and by the way, these were typically really long talks, so we're basically getting just the outline of what Paul's talking about here. So here's what it says. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. So this could be uh, negative or positive. Like it could be all oh, you silly fools, you, you worship trinket gods. Or it could be, you are so spiritual, right? So it's kind of a double entendre. You receive it how you receive it. So Paul sits up and just acknowledges the state of the people in Athens. People of Athens, I see that in every way you're religious. Then he says this, verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship. I want you to pay attention to this. As I walked around, meaning Paul is engaging in their culture, right? And see this word? And looked carefully at your objects of worship. You know, this is why I go, listen. Let's listen. Let's listen carefully. Let's, let's know the people we're trying to reach, right? So let's, let's go after that. Let's understand it, right? Let's, let's chase after it. So he goes, um, uh, carefully at your objects of worship. In fact, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So he's going, okay, 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 here. Let's find some common ground. You have had this God, like this one that you don't know where to put in your tool belt. Because here's what's evident. All the other gods haven't met the need yet, right? All the other gods haven't given you what it is you desire, right? C.S. Lewis has thought, perhaps if you find that nothing in this world will satisfy, maybe it's because you're meant for a different world. So all these things. So you literally had this extra God out there, just in case. This is your knock on wood, God, right? Uh, to an unknown God, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. This isn't an offensive term. It's not pejorative, right? Like he, that word ignorant there, in fact, the different translations, it doesn't even say that. It just says unknown, right? It just means that, that you're not aware, like that you don't know. We call people ignorant as it's mean. In this sense, this wasn't a mean statement. It was kind of a caveat. Hey, you, here's something you don't know about, right? So you have this God that's unknown. You don't know the God, so you're not sure who that God is. But hey, I'm going to be able to tell you. And so let me just tell you about something you don't know about. And this is what I'm going to pro- proclaim to you. So he's listened. He's studied. He's actually cared about the other side of the ravine. He's cared about the people there. He's actually humanized them. He isn't just showing up with a bullhorn telling people they should listen, right? Again, he's connecting with them and then waiting for permission to share. So he's listening. He's, he's carefully looking at stuff. He's receiving. And then when he's given permission to share, he's invited to the conversation. Now he's going to connect with them. So again, want to know how we do this. want to make it simple to, for people to connect to Jesus. It starts with listening 
knowing who you're connecting with, know your neighbors. Know what they care about. Know your colleagues and your coworkers. Know what they care about. Know what they're interested in, right? Learn a little bit about it, right? And then, um, and then go and connect with them and wait for the opportunity to be invited into the conversation. Paul gets invited into the conversation, and now he's going to find common ground and go, hey, here's something I can share as my ob- since I've made these observations and since you're asking. Now watch what he says. Now he's going to offer them some logic. The God who made the world and everything in it, not these guys who does a little bit, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now watch this. And does not live in temples built by human hands. So you have all these temples, you have all this stuff, and you go, this is Dionysius' place or whatever it is. You have all these things and you're going, the God of the universe doesn't live in these temples temples that are made by human hands, right? They can't contain him. He doesn't need humans for him to be um, alive and active and sustaining, right? He doesn't live. And watch this. He says it even more. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, right? All these other gods that you know, they, they're so temperamental and they're so codependent. They need you to focus on them. They need you to, to, to worship them. They need you to celebrate them because if not, it's like they don't really, they, they'll just be mad and angry. This God doesn't need those things to survive. This God was from the very beginning here. And so he can't be made by these trinkets. You literally are creating things with your human hands and then worshiping it. Rather, he himself gives everyone, he doesn't need anything. He gives all the things. Everyone. Life and breath and everything else. So guys, look around. Everything you look around. You're all trying to figure out where all this came from, how I got here, why I got here, and he's going, the God of the universe is the reason for all that. He gives life and breath and everything else. Everything else. You're looking. Could you imagine? If you're trying to find these gods, you're trying to find your God and your job or in your spouse or in, uh, you know, your fame or likes on Facebook. Like, what you are doing there is you're searching for something to give you ultimate satisfaction. That's what you're doing. That's what worship is. So he's going, hey, I noticed you're all really religious and really good worshipers. The problem is you're just worshiping things that are going to leave you empty. That car leaves you empty. Like, if you sit and pause and think about this long enough, like these philosophers have, you would come to the conclusion that all the things that you have sought to fill your tank to make you feel so fully alive has left you wanting. And he goes, the God of the universe and of heaven and earth. He is the one who gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Verse 26. From one man, he made all the nations. How did we get here, guys? Have you thought about it? From one man, he made all the nations. That they should inhabit the whole earth. Not only how did we get here, how did they cover all the earth, right? And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. You see, God's not tribal. He's not territorial. He, he's the God of all of the lands and all of time. It's like, you know, the people, you keep adding new gods, taking away old gods. He is the God who's been here and covers the whole face of the planet. Every single place. He is Lord of those places and wants those folks to know him. You know how I know that? Watch this. Verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. God did all this. You want to know why he did it? 
You don't know why he makes the world. You don't know why he created the sun. Well, you don't know why he gives us days of beautiful weather. You want to know why? You want to know why? So that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him. And guess what happens if you seek him and reach out to him? Guess what happens? And find him. You find him. And here's the really crazy thing, guys. He's not far from any of us. Same message to the folks in Athens. Here, hear me. God's given you all this. In fact, he even created this environment through this church that's nearly 300 years old and through generations of people have gone. It's not about tradition. It's about mission who have worked and served and continue to work to not make it difficult for those of us who are trying to come to faith. And literally, the God of the universe empowered those people to make this message land in your heart, in your soul, and your mind today because he is not far from you. You see that? That's how God orchestrates in him, right? And, and then he says this. It's so crazy. Verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Look at this. I want you to see that if you happen to look above my head. You see those quotation marks? Paul's quoting. Typically when he quotes, he quotes scriptures. This is not scripture. Here's how beautiful this thing is. Paul has built such a great footing on the other side of the ravine. He is literally quoting their artist. This is a song and then a poem. The song was actually written 600 years earlier about Zeus. He's going, you sing a song about Zeus as if he's the one we live and move and have our being. How's that worked out for you? That Zeus is the one you live for and that you have your being. He's going, no, no. That's, Zeus will leave you wanting. The God of the universe won't. Right? So he quotes a 600-year-old song. And then the second is a poet named Eridus. It's like 330 B.C. And then he actually quotes him in um, Titus as well. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. And he goes, here's the thing. The crazy thing about this in the beginning, God created it. We messed it up. Jesus redeemed us. Why? Because he wants you back at the table. He sees you as his sons and daughters. You are a child of the most high God. You want that? You want that? You want to keep trying to appease a false God that leaves you wanting and in pain? Or do you want to be a child of the most high God? Something tells me. You're listening to this right now. Just like the folks in Athens. You long for that. You long to be so connected to the creator of the universe. And that is available to you. Jesus paid the price for you to be welcome at the table. The Holy Spirit empowers you to live and move and have your being in him. Because you're his offspring. This he says this. Therefore, therefore, since we are his God's offering, we should not think that the, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image made by human design and skill. Let's just be honest. All these false gods, these false hopes, these false ideologies, those are all man-made. God is not man-made. And he says this, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Hey, men of Athens, God, God's been so gracious. He's been so slow to anger. He's overlooked this. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. So if you're listening to this, hey, hey he's, he's been so gracious and so kind but there's a command for you. Now that this has entered your ears, now that God has removed all the obstacles for this, because we don't make it difficult for those you come to faith, he is literally telling you that in him you can breathe and have your being and live. He is your purpose and meaning. He's not a means to your end, prosperity, fertility, whatever those things. He is the end. And so what you're hearing now is about this Jesus Christ who is enough, who has paid the price for you so that you can live in him. And he's saying, look, you didn't know this. So nothing's being held against your past or even right to this moment. But at this point, hear this. The God of the universe sent his son to save you. And he's asking you to repent. That means change the way you think about life and all those things and look at him and ask him to come and invade your life. That's what he's telling you to do. But now he commands people everywhere to repent. 
4. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this, to, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So he's going, here's the deal. There will be a day of judgment. And that shouldn't bother you. If you have any struggle with justice about the pain that's going on in our world, maybe that's where the start, starting with you, poverty, racism, like I said, at some point, people will be held accountable for what they did to oppress other people. Unless you're one of God's children and Jesus covers that and goes, no, no, I'll pay the price for that. So there'll come a day of judgment. God doesn't want that for you. He wants you as his child. He wants to welcome you back. And he's given us evidence of it in Jesus who came lived the perfect life, died the de- perfect death, and then came back to life to prove that he's God and now ascended to heaven and empowered his church to take this message forward, which is why you're hearing it today. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And the reality is there will be people, I hate this, gosh, it breaks my heart, they'll go, this is so silly, so ridiculous, that church, they want my money, they want my, whatever it is, hear me, don't want any of that stuff. But I wanted you to know the living God and be his child. But some of you are sneer, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. We want to hear you again. No, no, tell us more. How do we know this about Jesus? I know this is a long message. I know all this. We want to hear this. We want more, right? We want to hear more on the subject. And so as we close, let me tell you a little bit more about the subject, right? Um, right before Jesus died, he wanted to make sure the disciples knew that, um, that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he was going to pay the price for admission for the place he was preparing, right? And if you're um, going to join us in communion, that'll be the time to hit Paul's, grab your bread, bre- grab your juice, grab your wine. And so Jesus, uh, in that moment, took, took the disciples and reminded them that there would be a payment that was paid for them. Going, hey, hey, you're going to wonder if your price was paid in full. You're going to wonder if you have admission. You're going to wonder if you're welcome. Hear me, hear me. I want you to look. So I'm going to show you how much was paid for you so you know it. And then he, then he uh, took the meal and they were eating. And he kind of paused the meal at the end and go, hey, listen, listen, listen. And he would have taken some bread and he would have broken it. And he said, I want you to see this. You want to know how much price was paid for your mission? You want to hear more? You want to hear it again? Here it is, guys. Here it is. This is the price of mission. My body was broken for you. Why? Because I don't want your bodies broken. I don't want you to live in the pain and misery and the shame that this world brings and has fallen. I want you to know you're bought back. So you want to know the price? My body was broken for you. And he would have taken it. And he said, here, here. I want you to do this if you get your bread with you, right? He would give it to him and said, I want you to eat this. I want you to invite me into your life. And so he'd give it to him and he said, hey, would you take this bread? Would you eat it? And invite you to eat it, to receive this moment of God coming into your life and making it possible for you to be right with him. And so Jesus is telling you, there's nothing you could do to make me love you any less. In fact, I did all the work. And so here, here, understand this. My body is broken for you. Would you eat it? And then he would have um, taken the, the cup and he would have held the wine and he would have looked at him and he said, I want you to see this. And he would have poured out a little bit of it. He would have poured out a little bit. And he said, I want you to see this. See that? See that? This represents my blood that was shed for you. Shed for you. And you drink it, don't you? Know that this is the price of admission. I'm covering you for all eternity. You're welcome at the table. And he just, he'd invite him and say, here, here, drink it. So I want you, if you got the wine or the juice, would you just drink it? remember the price that was paid and it's so beautiful as this invitation happened 2,000 years ago and from that point forward we've been doing this in church to be reminded of what Jesus did and when you want to hear it again it's like here it is every month here it is Jesus' body was broken for you his blood was shed for you why? so you could be welcome at the table in fact Paul would not have been there that night 
but he would have been one of the leaders in the church in Athens. He would have invited new Christians in, and probably sometime real soon after that, he would have sat with them, and they would have broke bread and drank the wine, and they would have done that, and in that moment, he would have reminded them this, and this is what it says. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, for I received from the Lord what I'm also passing to you. Here it is again. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was portrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. What I did for you, don't you forget that you're welcome at the table. Don't you forget your mission has been paid. Don't you forget that I want to come and live in you because in me you have your being in your life. And he says this, for, here it is again, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? So in this, we're declaring Jesus' resurrection, declaring his goodness. And so I want you to sing this song with me as we kind of close that that is not anymore. And here again, we can't go back to where we came from. You know, know the good news. Can't go back to the beginning, right? And that we can, in this moment, rest with the Holy Spirit. Go, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and would you lead us as we now know what you've done for us? And then would you lead us to share that good news with others? So would you join me in this last song, uh, this last song as we sing?
Well, good job, guys. Way to hang in there. That was a lot. And in a couple of weeks, we'll start the Gospel of Luke. We'll be going just a few verses at a time to try to honor your time as much as possible. So thanks for leaning in. By the way, we covered Acts 15 and Acts 17 and covered about 45 seconds of Acts 16. Don't worry, though. We'll feed you baby birds next week. Next week. If you come right back to the same spot or come in person, either one, you'll get to hear Pastor Ben teach you on Acts 16 and how we build bridges and take the gospel to all people being empowered by the Spirit. So please, please, please come join us next week. Can't wait for you to be with us. Have a great week. God bless.